Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older men and women howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs celebrate our three-year anniversary and look forward to a fourth. We ponder the merits of getting fired on a Zoom call. We lament the fact that even with a cash price involved, some students don't pay attention to their assignments. We have a laugh over a neighbor who cautioned against using red and blue lights in their Christmas decorations. And we offer our choice for the last appliance you may ever buy. In the first of a two-part conversation, we listen in as three amazing women talk about being female and invisible in today's society. Stay with us. Well, Paul, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you what's on your mind. So you don't trust me to have something on my mind. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, of course, Pretty naturally, much. Jim, we need to talk about the fact that it's been three long, struggling, painful years for our podcast. <laughs> painful? No, well, I'm joking. It was actually a little over three years ago when you and I started chatting about a podcast. And, you know, we went through, well, what did we talk about? Uh, Beauty products? Nah. Uh, And we finally settled on, let's talk about what we know, growing old. And I tell you, it's been a heck of a lot of fun. Well, it's certainly been. You mean growing old has been a lot of fun? (laughs) Well, growing old, you can't help. You'd better have fun. So it's actually fun to talk about it. For me, what's been a, a lot of fun is... Um, the interviews we've been doing. Yeah. We have had an opportunity to talk with uh, some 70 people our age who are doing very interesting things with their lives. These aren't celebrities, but they have decided to make the third act of their life interesting and stay engaged with life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and... uh, Unlike you and I. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What have you done lately, Paul? Oh, I've done a podcast. Uh, I flossed and brushed (laughs) this morning. Um. (laughs) I have enjoyed every uh, conversation we've had. Uh, and uh, I think I might have learned a thing or two. It's certainly been inspirational for me that people have found so many different ways of staying engaged that I, I think that it's sort of given me permission to continue to do whatever f- I feel energized by. I you mean being you irritation feel. in your neighborhood, that, uh, <laughs> that kind of thing? Well, you, you're right. And, and uh, it's also been inspiring that so many people – have finally decided to follow a passion that they had earlier in life, whether it was writing, painting, whatever it might be. Um, And this third act was an opportunity to do what they really wanted to do, uh, not something they felt they had a responsibility to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there is this sort of myth, maybe, of the old person uh, becoming more and more eccentric. And I... I frankly don't think of it as being eccentric. I think that it is being more true to themselves. And uh, people who do that sort of thing, they are more true to themselves, seem to enjoy life a lot more. They don't have to answer to other people the way they felt they did before. Yeah, right. Except our wives. Come on. Well. (laughs) We still have to answer to them. Yeah, but that's an investment. Ah, okay. 
Uh, so for, for me, it's also been very energizing to research the pod nuggets. It keeps the machinery lubricated above your neck. I've had to read a, a bunch of different sources to uh, unearth these pod nuggets. And uh, th- that has also been an aspect of our podcast that I've enjoyed. Yeah, in fact, I appreciate the fact that you've had to read so that I don't have to. Really? Well, I know it's a struggle for you. I can continue <laughs> to watch TV. Right. You like to have people read to you. That's right. And that's, yeah. uh, uh, so anyway, I hope folks out there have been enjoying what we've been doing. We certainly have. And indulge us uh, <laughs> and uh, pretend that you're enjoying each episode as it comes along. Yeah, be nice to us because you never know what we're going to do if you're not. R- right. I was hoping to include all of you in my will. <laughs> <laughs> Zoom meetings are certainly an efficient way to meet with a large group for an announcement. But something like you're fired still needs to be handled in a more personal way. This pod nugget is from the New York Post for December 6, 2021. Vishal Garg, the CEO of mortgage lender Better.com, set a new low for corporate HR. He invited 900 employees to join him on a Zoom call. His greeting was, If you are on this call, you are part of the unlucky group that is being laid off. He added that he did not want to do this. However, his sympathy didn't last long. He was outed as the anonymous author of a blog post that slammed the people he fired. He wrote, at least 250 of the people terminated were working an average of two hours a day while clocking eight hours. Why, they were stealing from our customers who paid the bills that pay our bills. Garg reportedly has built a reputation for high expectations and low tact. In another email, he wrote, You are too damn slow. You are a bunch of dumb dolphins, and dumb dolphins get caught in nets and eaten by sharks. (laughs) (laughs) In case you are interested, the company is Better.com, and they are probably hiring after their recent downsizing. I'm in. How about you, Paul? (laughs) Yeah, sounds like a great guy to work for. A college professor shouldn't assume that students will carefully read every word on a class syllabus, unless there is a payoff, and maybe not even then. This pod nugget is from the New York Times for December 18th, 2021. Kenyon Wilson, a professor at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, decided to test whether students actually read the syllabus for his music seminar. Now, remember, a syllabus outlines the responsibilities and expectations for the class, and it can be rather dry reading. So to find out, on the second page of the three-page class syllabus, he included a hidden treasure. The treasure was a $50 bill, and the clues included the locker number and combination where the cash was hidden. On the first day of class, Wilson even pointed out that there were some new things in the syllabus, and a careful reading was advised. Well... Not one of the 70 students enrolled in the class claimed the prize by the end of the semester. As one student explained it, we read the parts that we deem important. You know, what's the attendance policy? What are the things I need to do to pass the class? And then there's other stuff. Since it was a music seminar, maybe the professor should have tried a musical clue. Good idea. How How about about money, money, money from Cabaret? Uh, Or pennies from heaven? (laughs) (laughs) Or Or not. (laughs) What, Pink Floyd? Money? Yeah. 
This post popped up on my next-door social networking service for my neighborhood, Westwood Grove in Houston. Well, you know, tis the season to be jolly. Dear neighbors, I don't mean to be a Grinch. However, to those of you who are placing Christmas lights, decorations in your yards, would you please avoid anything that has red or blue flashing lights together? Every time I come around the corner, I think it's the police. And she continues, I have to break hard, toss my margarita out the window, fasten my seatbelt, throw my phone on the floor, turn my radio down, and push the gun under the seat, all while trying to drive. It's just too much drama, even for Christmas. Thank you for your cooperation and understanding. (laughs) Well, no problem, neighbor. Now, about that expired license... When the medical company Theranos went bankrupt, one investor found a way to maybe recoup his losses. This pod nugget is from the CNBC website for December 16, 2021. The founder of Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes, attracted scores of investors with bogus claims for her blood testing technology. The company folded, leaving investors like Mark Ostrowski with worthless stock certificates, uh, maybe. Ostrovsky, who was a savvy art collector, decided to offer at auction his worthless $100,000 stock certificate signed by the company founder as a -a one-of-a-kind, non-fungible token, or NFT. The short and confusing explanation is that an NFT is a digital asset that represents Internet collectibles like art, music, and games. In this case, the winning bidder can exchange their token for the actual stock certificate, which I guess is suitable for framing and display as a tribute to investor greed and company fraud. Okay, the obvious question. Is trying to make a profit off of fraud just another form of fraud? Not to Ostrovsky. He suggests this is what an NFT should be, fun and a collectible one-of-a-kind. I guess if you buy it, it can be repackaged as an NFT of a fraudulent NFT. Switzerland, a country known for its neutrality, has come up with a machine to neutralize people. This pod nugget is from the Washington Post for December 9th, 2021. All right, this wouldn't be funny if it wasn't so bizarre. Switzerland is one of a handful of countries that allow assisted suicide. And now a Swiss inventor has developed the ultimate in comfort and painless oblivion, a 3D-printed pod that delivers a fatal dose of nitrogen. The inventor, Philip Nitschke, calls the machine a stylish and elegant way to die. He continues, it provides the sense of occasion by its looks. It looks good. It's a thing I'd like to get into. His language is just a little bit chirpy considering the subject. Yeah, well, whatever your views are on assisted suicide, here's the problem. Nitschke plans to post the 3D printing instructions online through his company, Exit International. This do-it-yourself coffin, called a Sarco, will make suicide easier to accomplish and more attractive for people who are vulnerable or mentally ill. This invention is not needed. I agree. For our third anniversary conversation, we asked our chief aging officer, Kathleen O'Brien, to moderate a discussion about the unique issues that women face as they get older. Speaking will be Kathleen O'Brien, our featured conversation in episodes 52 and 53. 
Kathleen is the author of Reclaim Your Right to Grow Old and a frequent contributor to this podcast. Joining her are Suzanne Savoy, our featured conversation in episodes 14 and 15. Suzanne is a busy New York actress and the coordinator of Lunchtime Story Readings for Adults, a delightful series of short story readings over Zoom. And Kathy Beal, our featured conversation in episode 59. Kathy is a lawyer, actress, astrologer, and author of a collection of essays called Eat, Drink, and Be Wary, Cautionary Tales. Two women walk up to a cosmetics counter. One is young, the other is you. Who does the salesperson see first? The younger one because you're invisible. It must be a phenomenon or syndrome or something because older women talk about it all the time and they use the same word, invisible, to describe how they feel. As women age in our culture, they say they often feel ignored, forgotten, irrelevant. Do you feel that way? And do you think our youth-oriented culture is to blame? Are little old ladies too easy to dismiss? And do aging men get a pass on their appearance because they're, well, men? I'm Kathleen O'Brien, along with Suzanne Savoy and Kathy Beal, to discuss what it's like for women to age. Welcome. I did a lot of research on aging, and as I did, I saw this word pop up again and again, invisible, and women all use it. They say that it doesn't matter where they are, what they're saying, what they're doing. They feel like people look right through them as they have grown older. Do you two feel that way? I feel not only invisible, sometimes I feel inaudible. You'll be in a conversation or, or at a dinner, or at a party, and um, it's as though anything I say is just not heard. And uh, I could say something clever or to the point and it's not heard. And then two minutes later, someone else in the group might say it and everyone breaks up laughing. This word invisible. I actually had a man observe in a crowd that I was able to walk through completely undetected. Now he was focused on me because he was a little weird, but he noticed, (laughs) I mean, I had male confirmation that I was invisible. So this is something I have been dealing with. And it's funny you say this because the last time I went shopping in a Trader Joe's, there was a queue, as we call it, in the Northeast. And someone said, next online and summoned the man behind me. So it's been going on for a while for you. And for Suzanne, how do you feel? Is this something that has increased as you've aged or is it something as a woman you've sort of always felt? I was aware of it from a very young age, possibly because I've always been really interested in costume. Costume can be what you're wearing, your hair, your makeup, your deportment. Um, I was a very pretty little baby and everybody oohed and awed over me. And then when I hit about six years old, I started getting gangly and uh, I got a little sister who got all the attention. And um, I started to look like a little boy, a little skinny, ugly boy which I remained looking like until I was about 15 and then was allowed to grow my hair, was allowed to wear makeup, was allowed to buy clothes. Until then, I was not allowed to, you know, do all those things. My parents were very strict. I went to a convent school where we had uniforms. So I was really aware very early how you deport yourself has an awful lot to do with how people see you or whether they see you. And it certainly has gotten much more pronounced I guess when I was about 40 and moved to New York City, 
I moved from Texas to New York City, I found that it wasn't so much the difference in the way I looked or deported myself. I mean, I'm sure that had a lot to do with it. But from one day to the next, one day living in Houston to the next day living in New York City, I became invisible. It was crushing. I mean, uh, you know, I used to walk down the street in Houston and people would smile at me or acknowledge me. But in New York City, you don't get that. You hardly get it at all. Also, because um, everyone's afraid that if someone says hello to you, they want something. Was that hard, particularly being an actor, to feel that invisibility? Or did you not feel that then when you went to auditions or when you got involved in the acting community? You know, Kathy and I are both actors. And we know that if you're on stage and you look like you're having fun, uh, the audience will look at you. And it's not like you don't try to do that because it's very disruptive to the show that you're in. But, you, you know, there are always actors that are more fun to look at. And uh, Kathy, definitely, I've watched her in many shows, and she just always looks like she's having fun. And so the audience always looks at her. And I, I would imagine if if Kathy had been in that same crowd where she was so invisible, if she had been looking like she was having fun, she probably wouldn't have been as I don't know. Is it invisible? That's what I find. (laughs) People still challenge me on this. I've brought this topic up in the last week in anticipation of this conversation. And I've had people go, oh, come on. You walk into a room and everyone knows you're there. And well, no. Oh, I believe it, Kathy. I absolutely believe it. (laughs) But it doesn't feel it doesn't feel that way to you, though, Kathy. That's what you're saying. No, but I have actually an an additional um, perspective on this, though. Invisibility is sometimes very welcome, very welcome. I remember uh, riding on uh, the underground in London after going to to going to the opera, and I was wearing an evening gown, and I had a ridiculous uh, gold leopard print shawl, and no one was looking at me, and I loved it. It was like I could live here; no one would ever bother me here, and I actually enjoy the aspect in New York City of being able to walk around and having everybody ignore me. Well, what about men? Do you think they, uh, I'm going to use the word suffer (laughs) from from this feeling of invisibility as much as women, or do we really have different standards for men as they age? What do you think? I think there is a difference I find it's very important to uh, be able to lose the cloak of invisibility, especially in the medical field. Right, Kathy? Yeah. It's it's so easy to be invisible when you're trying to get medical help. I've been through three bouts of cancer, two of which um, have been very life-threatening. And uh, 10 years ago, when I had rectal cancer, I tried very hard to get into Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is uh, the big cancer hospital in New York City. And I contacted the office of the, the surgeon who would have been my surgeon had he taken me on. He wouldn't even see me. He said, well, his assistant called me back and said, well, we have no reason to believe that you have cancer, so we're not going to take you as our patient. Uh, and I did. I had stage four rectal cancer, which you know nearly killed me. After I had finished my treatments uh, with another medical team, I um, spoke with a, a girlfriend whose husband had picked up the phone and called this same doctor and got right through to him. And they became pals. You know, they, oh, they had dinner together. They went golfing together. You know, money and status might have had something to do with that. But it was just shocking to me 
that it was just so much easier for him to get through to this. And he didn't even, he didn't even have cancer. He just thought had, had a little blip on his um, uh, colonoscopy and he was like a, a little worried. So he figured he'd go right to the top and he did uh, and was able to get in. But I was out sort of outside the walls of the hospital, you know, banging to get in and, and couldn't get in, had to go to someone else. You know, I went in for a colonoscopy as you go in every 10 years and I've been blessed. There was nothing in there. And my GI guy said, you don't ever need to have another one again. I'm 73. And uh, I said, really? And he said, nope, you don't need to. And uh, I said, well, why? He said, well, because by the time you would get something, you would be too old to, you know, for us to deal with it. Basically, I'm thinking, okay, that's 10 years from now, I'll be 83. I don't consider that too old to deal with a medical problem. I've observed uh, horrible things. I have a girlfriend whose mother's complaints were just dismissed and dismissed and dismissed until she had stage four rectal cancer and it was too far gone and she died very quickly because they just kept downplaying it. Oh, you're just this little lady. And I'm sure everybody can have thoughts like that. But my own experience, because I have a background as a lawyer and I do have this ability to convey something with my voice, uh, uh, this doesn't happen to me. When I was running interference for my mother, who is in her 90s, uh, after my father died, uh, and she was not understanding stuff with all kinds of financial institutions, I would call and I'd be very pleasant, but I would very quickly slip in. Oh, and by the way, I'm a lawyer. So there is something about what you present and, and going about it, but there's an element of bulldozer that you need to have to make it work, I think. Women were not brought up to be this way. We were acculturated, if that is a word, to smile and be nice. And, and all kinds of labels were put on you if you rocked the boat. Boy, I think you've really hit on something about how women are supposed to be in society. And I find that one of the differences between men and women, not only that, the countenance, as you talked about, you have this certain countenance when you come in and you say, I'm a lawyer. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to sit up and pay attention. But I, I also think, you know, women are expected to be nice and pleasing. And not only that, the thing that really ticks me off at this point, we're supposed to be perpetually attractive and sexy and youthful. I mean, didn't we have enough of that through our youth and middle age? Do we still have to keep trying to do this? How do you feel about that? If you do it for your own amusement or because it makes you feel good, that's fine with me. If you're doing things because you believe some force outside of you is expecting it or forcing it on you, life is too short for that. That is nonsense. A lot of women buy into it, though. And, you know, it's interesting, Suzanne, because you're in a business where appearance does make a difference. I change my look constantly because I audition a few times a week on a, on a good week. So I have many wigs which I use a lot right now because I lost my hair going through chemo. So I, I just change the way I look all the time. Sometimes I make myself look older. Sometimes I make myself look younger. So that is part of my job to change the way I look, but not necessarily to look younger. I would say, if anything, I'm, uh, I have to look older. 
I heard somebody talk about Gloria Steinem once, a friend of hers, another uh, well-known person, and I can't remember who it was. But someone said, well, how did Gloria look to you? She said, terrible, meaning Gloria Steinem hasn't had anything done. Gloria Steinem has aged just naturally. Uh, and she's, what, 86 now? Well, of course she looks 86. She's in her 80s. What do you want her to look like? And yet, what, do, what do people say about Willie Nelson? Do they say he looks terrible or do they just say he looks old? I don't know. Or do they say he looks wizened and interesting and like the kind of character he's always been? Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.